This is a Ranieri & Co. and Headline Productions podcast. We've all experienced moments of intense change in our lives. Maybe you've become a parent or lost a family member. Maybe you've moved house or ended a long-term relationship. All of those things come with adjustments. They're turning points where we can reassess what we want in our lives. They can trigger us to take a moment to work out what we believe in. For elite athletes, leaving the sporting arena can come with all of these questions and more. This is a long haul, and I'm Emma Murray. And for this episode, I've asked someone I know pretty well to co-host. Yeah, my name's David Asprey. Uh, I've played for the Richmond Football Club of the AFL for 12 years and played 155 senior games. And won three premierships. Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> I was lucky to win, lucky enough to be a part of three winning premierships. I decided I wanted to work on this episode with Dave because he's just finished up his AFL career and is at the point of wanting to find out what's next. Who better to work out how we can all best transition from one life stage to the next? Also, he's a pretty insightful guy. My relationship with the Richmond Football Club is one of the most important things that I've ever had in my life and um, to, to have stepped away from that was something that really challenged me but I've understood my sporting mortality for quite a while now um, but in terms of what I love about football you know the camaraderie and just having that collective goal knowing each other and learning about each other at a far deeper level it's something that only got stronger the longer that my career went and that's certainly something that I'm also going to miss. I loved the highs when the atmosphere was there but a lot of the time the atmosphere instills a lot of fear in you and at a lot of times throughout my career I was in fear on on the sporting arena so um yeah, I'm going to cherish a lot of memories, but I'm not going to cherish that feeling, Em. Uh, I started to almost count down the weeks that I've only had that feeling left. Constantly in the back of my mind, I had a lot of, you know, figureheads in my life, like my father and, and other people, you know, their, um, their thoughts of people killing to be in my situation ringing in my ears or, you know, um, you're a long time retired and, and things like that and just thinking how those words did not suit me at all at that point in time and um, how ready I felt was, uh, was something that was a, a really overwhelming feeling. We have organised for you to have a conversation with Shane Gould, the incredible um, former Olympic swimmer. You happy to have a chat to her? Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty excited by the prospect of having a chat with Shane Gould, yeah. Our careers were substantially different. <laughs> I was an Australian of the year at 15 years of age, yeah. <laughs> um, really? And you haven't won Survivor, <laughs> I haven't won Survivor. I haven't even been invited. Um, but I know that there will be similarities in the feelings. Hello, my name is Shane Gould, Dr. Shane Gould, a PhD. Um, 
from 2019 and the culture of swimming in Australia. I've been best known probably as the as an Australian sporting legend from the 1972 Munich Olympics. My brief um, career in swimming, I um, I held 11 world records in six different events. But my whole experience as a youngster was just crazy, crazy unusual. But I think that I that I've been able to come through, but it uh, through to it to have a really good sense of self and 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 know where swimming fits in my life, and it's an extremely valuable thing, and I do it all again, all the same way. In a moment, we're going to hear about Shane's experience of leaving elite sport when she was only 16. Loneliness is indicative of modern society. It affects everyone at some point. It's part of the human condition. Thanks to Medibank, We Are Lonely is a podcast that seeks to demystify loneliness. Follow the journey of four diverse 20-somethings on their search for connection. Young Australians have never been more lonely, yet loneliness is rarely discussed and often misunderstood. Season two of the We Are Lonely podcast is part of Medibank's 10-year commitment to reduce chronic loneliness in Australia. We Are Lonely is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Search for We Are Lonely and listen today. Oh, there was just massive, massive amounts of... Um inquiries about about my uh, by, by the media and you know public appearances and it had a huge strain on my parents and my family I had three sisters and uh, and and I, I sensed you know there was an awkwardness there that there was an unfair amount of attention on me uh, so I went to America you know, about five or six months after the Olympics and lived with this this family well, and I trained and um, and I was very independent. I went to a Catholic high school and two of the things I did was speech. So I learned how to make speeches and the other one was um, Christian ethics. And I was just blown away, you know, by discussing morality versus ethics and and it sent me off on a trajectory to to look at philosophy and meaning of life. So... When I came back from America after being there for five or six months, um, I was overweight. I'd had too many donuts and <laughs> <laughs> chocolate chip cookies, you know. <laughs> and so I wasn't fit enough. I hadn't done enough training to be fit enough to compete in the first World Swimming Championships. So I, I pulled out of that. Uh, then I got offered this contract with Arena. I'm just going to jump in and explain something here. Until the 1980s, Olympic athletes couldn't earn any money for their sport, including through advertising. So Shane had a choice between training hard to get her body back in shape for the next Olympics or taking this contract and making some money from her fame. So I did ads, you know, for White Wings muesli flakes and, and swimming equipment and swimsuits and it involved going to France. Initially, there was a lot of excitement about what you know about the travel and learning new things and meeting new people. And but I wasn't very physical, so I tried to swim and I tried to walk and run. And then it wasn't till about April of 1974 that I met the man who eventually became my husband, and he took me surfing and I learned how to surf. 
you know, the thrill of being in the ocean and, and just the relationship with, with the water, you know, the, the exquisite pleasures of being in the water. And then the community. So the, the community of people um, embraced me and saw me as a, a learning kook, you know. <laughs> the, you know and, and, but they were supportive, even though, you know, I was so well known a person, they related to me as me, which, which was lovely because I thought, okay, well, there's, a, there's more to me than being Shane Gould the swimmer. Mm. Surfing is one of the things that I've picked up in my own retirement, and yeah, you, you speak of the term "kook." That's something that certainly I <laughs> that resonates with me. <laughs> I identify with that. And it's a whole different culture, isn't it? You know, the, mm. the the people, the history. When I went on a, a safari across the Nullarbor uh, when I was eighteen traveling across this sublime landscape in the desert, you know, surfing at Cactus um, near Penong. And it was just so exciting and so interesting that, that, that the Olympics and the, the um, you know, swimming competition seemed insignificant and, and unimportant. Shane and her new husband ended their road trip on the south coast of WA. They settled down there, ran a farm, had four children. It was very different from the fast, bright life of a famous swimmer, but it was still busy and all-consuming. It wasn't until more than a decade after she'd stopped swimming, when her kids had grown up a bit, that Shane realised something wasn't feeling right. I get down, you know, and um, just have have this sort of flat feeling for a few days after I'd done an interview, and I went to my local GP. And she referred me to a sports psychologist. He'd found, you know, through the, the research, some really good articles. So they called it at that stage, athlete career transitions or sports retirement stress. So that was the term and I embraced that. There are other times in life where you go through these changes and you adapt, you know, it just, it just takes a bit of time. Some people take it harder than others. Some people just, it's, it's a breeze to get through, you know, that, that, that particular, so it's a transition. So it's not a, it's not an end, it's not a cut off. I, I would probably attribute my search for reconciliation and debriefing with my life as a, you know, with how, how I was living in Western Australia with my husband and four kids. Um, I think that that search and that, that uh, over a period of 10 years led to the demise of my marriage. Just became untenable to, to be an integrated Shane Gould. Shane met a few people who helped her understand the experience of transition, including a woman called Deirdre Anderson. I remember making contact with her. She's living over in um, WA, uh, in the middle of down near Margaret River, in a very isolated uh, part of Margaret River. And I asked, could I come and visit and talk to her? So I went all the way over and spent two days with her and just let her talk. And I said, how would you like to me to send you some articles? And so, um, 
just sending her articles and she read every one of them and we'd talk on the phone about it and she'd read another one and she'd read another one. In the end, she knew more about it than I did. <laughs> and then I said to her, what are you going to do with this? You, now it's your time to play it forward. And that's what she's done ever since. After working with Shane, Deirdre went on to study transition, particularly for athletes. She supported some of our country's most famous athletes through this process, like Ian Thorpe and Cathy Freeman. So she understands what transition is, how it can impact, and how to prepare for it. Well, I think the first thing is to almost accept the fact that life just lets you slide up in the clouds and think that everything's wonderful and then it'll pole drive you into the concrete very quickly. But nothing ever stays the same. And so I think helping people at a young age to navigate the uncertainty and accept the fact that change is inevitable Mm. and you can't stay in that pre-contemplative stage or you're going to get hurt. You've got to be constantly contemplating um, and, and navigating what that might mean. But the real essence of being able to do that is knowing yourself. How would you differentiate between an athlete transitioning into, you know, what could be phrased as the real world or, and, and someone who's just maybe moving town or moving job? It depends how much that transition is going to interrupt your definition of yourself. That's probably the easiest way to, to unravel it. So if you think of the voluntarily and involuntary decision, transitions are either you choose to move down, you choose to get another job, or you're sacked or you're retrenched. And when you talk to people that are retrenched from jobs, that grief process is very, very similar to what happens when someone is either deselected or injured or has a poor poor performance to the level where they're dropped. That grief process is exactly the same. And the second thing is um, we all have issues in our life, but they're not put across the paper or they're not uh, public. But imagine if one of those circumstances was then put all over the local paper or screamed out the front door so everyone else knew what was going on and how they would feel. The body's going to go through changes. The mind's going to go through changes. The social network's going to go through changes. Your identity is going to go through changes. Your conversation pieces are going to go through changes. Um, People are going to have an opinion on what you should and shouldn't have done. Uh, So all of those things have to be part of either a process that could take 24 hours or a process that could take 10 years. The first thing is you you need to stay physical. So if you're surfing, that's great. That's that's going to be, be really good. But as athletes, that's the way we express ourselves in the world. So so keep expressing yourself physically because then at least you you know yourself in that that that, that action. And then, but then you have to expand your identity. So you need to put yourself into scary situations where you are the kook, you know, you are the learner. (laughs) (laughs) And so just keep learning new stuff. I think another thing that Deirdre talked about was transferable life skills. I said, well, I, I sew on a treadle sewing machine and I can bake bread. And so then you look at your transferable skills and that just gives you a confidence, you know, that, that you pick up things. Rituals are very important. Uh, th- this particular ritual was my mother heard, heard that the ancient Olympian athletes uh, in, the, in Greek times 
when they won a competition, they were awarded a laurel wreath. When they went back home, they laid the laurel wreath on the altar of their hometown to, to the gods of their, their hometown. Um, and so we talked to the local Methodist church. And so one Sunday morning, just at a normal church service, they gave us you know, three or four minutes and I put my medals on the altar of the, the church and it was like, like they were outside of me you know, then. They, 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 they're not who I am. But at the same time, my mum said to me, because you've had these experiences and you've brought a lot of attention to yourself, she said, you have, you're like the nobility now. You have an obligation as one of the noble people in society. Mm. So get used to it. You know? wow. So it was like, okay, so there's a responsibility to this. It's not just what can I get? What mm. can I have? Who can I be? It's how can I turn this around and make, make good of it? You know, just having a consciousness of the planet's needs and the community needs, your neighbours' needs, your own needs, your family's needs. If you can't rattle off very quickly what your values are, that's your starting point. Um, if you can rattle those off, then you try and attach those to and give them meaning and behaviours and almost objects that help you to, to live and eat and breathe those values. But what about athletes that have their career ended as a result of their own misconduct or behaviour or, or some sort of... Um some sort of controversy well i guess the first thing to recognize is if if your environment that you've come through in sport has accepted your behaviors and i've worked with a few cricketers and other football players <laughs> that have been in that predicament they don't understand that that behavior is not normal or accepted in society and then you go out into the community and you behave the same way and you, you think, well, what's the problem? Yeah. So the boundaries of moving from the change room to the community become very blurry. And then the other part of it is none of us can shy away from what our responsibilities are. Yeah. We all know, doesn't matter, you know, unless you're a sociopath, we all know what's right and wrong. Yeah. And so a big part of that sort of fostering those cultures is, is to help all of the athletes to understand what tools they might need to navigate their way through this and and take the onus off what might happen in five or six years but how can I be the best version of myself today as we're on this journey of better understanding transition and, and having people tell story and, and give insight and you've given us some advice to go and talk to, to Clint Newton can you share a little bit of insight as to why you think that he's someone who's important to talk to when it, when it comes to this topic? Clint is probably one of those exceptional athletes who has come from firstly a family of highly successful um, parent Jack Newton, the golfer um, so he's an aspiring rugby league player, or was, um, plays incredibly well in a very male-dominated um, environment. But there's, a, there's an innate nurturing in this man's personality that makes him so conscious of the role of women, the role of um, all these social causes that drives the way he lives his life. And 
has this persistent way of um, delivering in a sport that is probably one of the toughest ones to do it in. After a short break, we'll hear my conversation with Clint and his perspective on leaving sport as a player and a player's advocate. Yeah, uh, Clint Newton, former NRL and Super League player, uh, played for 15 years across uh, across both Australia and, and the UK for uh, the Knights, uh, Melbourne Storm, Hull Kingston Rovers and Penrith Panthers. And now I'm uh, the Rugby League uh, Players Association CEO and have been for the last two years. As you mentioned, you've, you've played for a number of clubs and that actually entailed... Um, Playing in a number of different cities, you've encountered different injuries and adversities across your career. Um, how do you think that that helped shape your sporting career and the the phase of transition post your your career? Yeah, I think in well, I think the foundations were laid when I was when I was a kid. Uh, you know, really, uh, um, playing elite sport is is hard. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But I think that you are given the best chance of being successful in your career um, by some of the foundations that are laid when you're, you know, when you're a child. Really, it all started back there, you know, from, from watching my father, you know, not letting his, um, his accident and what was taken away from him by his career, um, his, his right arm and his, and his right eye, um, uh, stop him from being the father that I needed him to be. You might have heard of Clint's father. As Deidre said before, Jack Newton was a professional golfer. He was at the height of his career when an accident with a plane propeller at Sydney Airport almost killed him. That was in 1983, and Clint was just two years old. Um, and, and also the fact that my mother um, was such an incredibly, and still is, resilient woman, that also gave me um, a sense of understanding about the role that women are going to play in your life um, and and I certainly couldn't have done it without her um, so it started really there um, and my ability to understand rejection really early you know where I wasn't very good you know at, at, um, at any sport I was just a battler um, just a, just average Joe um, and probably below average um, in in rugby league particularly I'm starting to understand a few similarities between yourself and myself, mate. I was the battler, your average Joe, throughout my career and understood what it was like when things were difficult or adverse times as well. But you've obviously, you're one who's, your preparedness to work through challenge and and really meet it head on, it probably meant you didn't have that sense of entitlement that you'd probably see a lot in in a number of Australian sporting industries. Do you think that that made it a little bit easier? I think so. I, I think that um, whilst it was elite sport, I wasn't in the elite company, you know. Um, so I had to get, I had to be very, much more strategic, surround myself with really, you know, really trusted people. Like in my circle was really quite small. Uh, but I think my transitional issues came probably two or three years later. I probably didn't really allow myself enough time during my career to understand some of the feelings that you get whilst you're playing. And because we're operating in this cycle of just move on to the next thing, you know, next game, next match, next set, next rep, you you are in this cycle like this hamster on a wheel. And then 
when you transition out, um, for me, I went straight from playing straight into full, full blown work with the RLPA, straight into a collective bargaining agreement, straight into advocating for player rights, very public, um, and whatnot. Which was the right, which is what I chose, mind you. It's not, it's not about, um, uh, you know, doing that begrudgingly. I chose that, um, but. It was just you're on all the time again, and you're dealing with a lot of conflict, a lot of emotion. Um, I wasn't very good at, uh, I was terrible at sharing um, because I didn't want to burden people um, with my problems. I was very big on fixing everyone else. Um, I wasn't I wasn't allowing myself space to think about things that I probably didn't want to really unpack, um, and and that that catches up with you. If I had my time over again. Um, I would have gone through 12 months, I reckon, of counselling. I didn't know that I needed it, you know, like, but just start, just do it and just have someone to talk to that's safe, confidential, and you don't know what can come of that. With the Players Association, you'd be pretty passionate about the process of retiring, of, of transitioning. What's, what is your mantra when it comes to, to that? You know, how you manage people transitioning in, I think has a, and how you're managing them in their careers and what environments are we creating for our players um, and our people, both women and men, and not trying to jam a square peg in a round hole when it comes to women and, you know, what we're doing with them. Because you can't just say, oh, that's what we did in the men's space. So that's what we're going to do with women because they have, you know, absolute variances in what, um, in, in what they go through. Mm. is going to impact how you're transitioning out. So my name's Janice Blackman. I'm a proud Gubby Gubby and Butchelor woman um, from the Sunshine Coast region. Grew up in Mount Isa though, um, and I am an Australian softball player. As Clint said, men and women have some different experiences when it comes to elite sport. Research from the University of Sydney found that leaving sport is made harder for women because generally, they're paid less than men. Choosing how and when to retire is very different if you're financially comfortable. It's also much harder for women to have kids while still playing a professional sport, which adds to the stress of deciding when to leave. Janice chose to keep playing professional softball for five years after having her son. Obviously, there was that thought about whether or not, okay, Am I done here or am I not? There was so many factors telling me you're done. And it wasn't just my head. It was a lot of the things around me. There was a lot of people that were supportive, but then there was a lot of people who wasn't. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to stay here to piss you off. <laughs> I'm just going to keep playing to piss you off at this point. So uh, I think it was more of the fact that um, you know, I wanted to prove to a lot of the people that was saying I was done that no, I'm not. Like I can keep playing if I wanted to, and I'm going to keep playing because I actually love this sport, and I'm going to bring my son along the ride with me. That's that's awesome. So throughout your pregnancy, it was something that you contemplated whether or not you'd continue playing. Yeah, definitely. It was definitely during the pregnancy and um, towards the end of the pregnancy. Um, and then when I had my baby, I actually went back and played as soon as I was allowed to. So, um, like in six weeks, I actually went back and played a grand final at my club. So it was great. 
then it was about two months down the track. Um, so I was still playing, and then about two months down the track, I actually played another tournament. So it was um, it was funny, but it wasn't at the same time because, like, technically I was meant to be being careful. So I got a I doctor got a doc, got a doctor's clearance and everything. And then, like, at this tournament, I made a diving catch. So I was like, oh no, <laughs> oh no, that's not careful. <laughs> All I could say is that there was cramps everywhere. Just cramps. And all you can do is just lay there. And then one of my teammates actually had to come run over and pick me up and actually act like I was like celebrating, but I wasn't. I was in so much pain. <laughs> Mentally, I was fine, but physically, I was like, I just want to die right now. <laughs> now, in the lead up to this interview with you, I was fortunate enough to interview other, other athletes or former athletes. And one was Shane Gould, who had enormous profile and fame the other one was Clint Newton who was financially compensated throughout his career so that's probably two things that you wouldn't associate as much with softball how do you see the challenges of that as being an elite athlete I mean it's definitely a challenge like I I see it as very frustrating at times but you know it's uh, it's unfortunate that women's sport just aren't up there with men's sport yet it's, it's getting there. It's not just quite there yet. But it was more about why I played the sport in the first place. And that was because I loved it. I loved playing the sport. I love throwing the ball as hard as I can. I love I love the sound the ball makes when it hits my glove. I love hitting the ball as hard as I can. I love the adrenaline it gives you, the dopamine that it releases. It just feels good to play that kind of sport. It's true that sport is about much more than money. But on a practical level, being paid properly for your time makes a huge difference. For me, AFL was my full-time job. I chose to study while I played, but for the most part, I could work that around my AFL career. In the lead-up to the Olympic Games, Janice had to make some pretty huge sacrifices to stay in contention for the team. I was doing double sessions up to going to the gym at like 5 to 6 in the morning and then going to gym at like uh, straight after work, like directly straight after work and then... Uh, my son would be with me the whole time. So he'd be sleeping, sleeping in the child's area in the morning and then he'd come in the afternoon and just chill there. After all that intensity of training, working and being a mum, Janice didn't make the final cut into the Olympics. She flew home from Japan and watched the team play from hotel quarantine. I wasn't too disappointed to be honest, like, cause I still love the sport either way. And like, whether I get picked or not, I'm still happy in what I achieved. Um, because like I looked at all the achievements I actually did and turned it around to, you know what, now that I look back on it, that actually wasn't an easy thing to do. One thing that's really, really rung true or, or really sort of shone through in the interviewing process is the importance of knowing yourself. Do you think that as an Indigenous woman, like your connection to country and to your culture, you know, will really play, play a big role in that for you? Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, definitely 100% and connecting with culture and just the country in general. Um, so it's made me really be just the real me in general. So it's kind of not made me pretend to be anything I'm not, really take pride in who I am and just really kind of put everything I can into the sport. Like softball is not what makes me in any sort of way. Softball is not what makes me. I was I was I was black before softball before softball even come along. Like for me, culture will never ever be lost. And like for me, that's a big part of who I am. And 
I'd never ever shy away from it. And even if I could, I definitely wouldn't because like who'd want to shy away from that in any sort of way? Well, Janice, you seem completely unfazed by the process of transition. Have you got any advice as to, you know, those people that are dreading retiring or transitioning, how to have a little bit more of you in them that that doesn't seem like such a daunting task? Well, so my biggest advice, I've actually always been excited to be asked this question, to be honest, because I see it so much. I see that actually so much. So I'm really excited you asked me this. (laughs) So my biggest advice, honestly, would not make it your life like don't make sport your life because when you started the sport it wasn't your life like softball is definitely not my life maybe it used to be i think that was the thing that snapped when i had my son i was like this can't be my life anymore because now my life is more focused on something bigger and that is raising my son i find that people that are able to navigate the transitions have got a real sense of value for them for their own identity. They understand themselves. They, they know what um, their conscience stands for. They know where their boundaries are. So there's been examples with athletes that have been in their late 20s that have had to go right back to when they were at school, 13, 14, and, and get to know themselves all over again because they've just disappeared. When it comes to choices, priorities and to transition it's been a big couple of years so many things have changed in all of our lives since covid how we work how we socialize everything's been impacted shane gould has experienced so much transition in her life from sport but also with her studies and parenting and then stepping back into the spotlight with survivor so what advice does she have for us as a society in transition was well, that that Buddhist <laughs> saying, you know, this too shall pass. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's not, this isn't life, you know, it, it, um, it, it isn't how things are, are going to be forever. I was a, a gardener and I used to make compost and I thought, well, all the shit in your life, you know, that, that happens, you know, all the you know the, the difficult things to manage, you put it in your compost heap and then you put it on your plants and then it grows, it grows really cool things. After this quick break, I'm going to catch up with Emma Murray again. So Dave, you have gone and interviewed Changled, Deidre Anderson, Clint Newton, Janice Blackburn. That's quite a list of people. So a mate comes to you who's still playing, who's, you know, still in in the sport and they fess up to you that they're thinking about retiring. What would your advice be, taking everything you've learned through these interviews, what would you say to that athlete? I look forward to telling them that it's, that it's okay, that it's hard. And that's really, that's really what everyone experiences and there's no one that doesn't find this challenging in some way shape or form the the misconception is is like if someone expressed oh the transition the the retirement process for me was really hard i think the common response would be "Well, well you weren't prepared and what i say to that is rubbish that's that's nonsense like i know a number of people 
who could not be better prepared for retirement and I consider myself to be one of those people who really, really plan for that process and it challenges you and that's certainly okay. And not just for athletes, for people that are, they see their dream job or a, a change to a different city that they really want to move to or they move on from a relationship or you know something like that and they're excited about it they see all the positives it's still going to challenge them and and that's okay so what next for you i mean shane gould gave you a big tick for continuing to surf so be a professional surfer professional podcaster retirement expert yeah i'm a rubbish surfer and this process i've found you know to host a podcast episode i've had the sweatiest hands that I've had in my life. <laughs> and I don't think that I've probably done it justice, the, the great people that have been on this show, but I've really loved it. Like right now, I'm not in a locked contractual situation. I'm not bound geographically, so I'm doing a bit of moving around. And I think that that's going to help with that curiosity and, and keep better understanding and establishing who I am beyond the sporting field, beyond the Richmond Football Club and beyond the AFL. This is ideally like what I want. Just keep being open and, and okay with the challenges that present because they're the things that are going to help define me beyond you know the, the sporting field. Well, that's it for season one of The Long Haul. I've loved working on this show. It's been a challenge and a new experience. And I've had a chance to flex my curiosity and to meet some pretty outstanding people. We're researching season two now, so if there's anything you think we should include, let us know. You can find me on Instagram at High Performance Mindfulness, and you can find the rest of the team from Headline Productions and Ranieri and Co on LinkedIn and Instagram. The Long Haul is a Ranieri & Co. and Headline Productions podcast. This episode was produced by me, Liz Keane, and Simon Portis, and our guest host was David Asprey. Editing was by me. Theme music was created by Kenneth Lample. Special thanks to our host, Emma Murray, and to Nick Randall, Rob Ranieri, and Zach Kangalaris from Ranieri & Co. Thanks also to Shane Gould, Deirdre Anderson, Clint Newton, and Janice Blackman.